Welcome to The Mentor List. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to The Mentor List. This is our specialist mini-series called Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation. With your mini-series host, Richard Elstone, partner at Folly Durham, prior guests on the show, and well-known expert and coach in getting execs ready for making a move. I hope you enjoy this episode of Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation here on The Mentor List. So, um, Div Pillay, thank you very much uh, for coming for this podcast interview on Diversity Matters. It is a great privilege to have you here and you've come sort of recommended by loads of people that have been on the show as well. So uh, I can't wait to uh, find out all about you and about your career, etc. So it'll be fantastic. So without further delay, yep. can you tell us and the audience all about you and your childhood and where you were born and, and all and your parents and everything? That'll be wow. fantastic. Yeah. From the beginning. From Jim. the beginning. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be on. I'm really keen to share my story because I think more diverse stories need to be shared, especially with young leaders and, you know, leaders currently. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased to be on. Um, big question, where was I born? I was born in South Africa in the 70s. And uh, I'm not sure whether your audience uh, might know their South African history, but Indians were brought in the 1800s as indentured laborers. Mm-hmm. So I'm fifth generation South African Indian. So we, you know, often people will say, oh, how fantastic uh, would it have been to grow up in South Africa? And I often say, well, not really, because we we grew up, um, we didn't choose to be there. So our heritage is coming from an indentured or slave labor um, kind of background. Our family worked really hard to get to a middle class uh, status, uh, mainly through the pathway of education. Mm-hmm. We lived in a bubble uh, mainly by law, which at the time was called the Group Areas Act, and Indians lived in an Indian area and whites lived in a white area and blacks lived in a black area uh, or informal settlements, and our coloured race, the mixed race between blacks and whites, lived in a coloured area. So we were very divided across race, which is the way that we grew up and the way that sort of colours my opinion on diversity and inclusion because uh, when you experience living like that, uh, you really understand what it means to feel on the outside or living in a bubble. And so we had, you know, pretty much everything tuned out. So we had Indian media, Indian newspapers, Indian primary and secondary schools. Um, and only in the 1990s was my first opportunity to apply for a university, which took all raises. And we had 1994 was the first democratic election with Nelson Mandela. So in the early 90s, we were moving towards a bit of progress. And that's the first time in my life that I saw a little bit of opportunity. Yet it wasn't easy because the opportunities that were given to Indians and coloreds and black South Africans were different than they were given to white South Africans. So mm-hmm. we were judged very much on um, scores. And, you know, I had 
you know, A's and B's predominantly, um, yet that was not enough to make the cut to get into medical areas. There were only a few places reserved for people of color in there. Some Indian parents who were more well-to-do than others would send their kids to um, overseas to study, and we just didn't have that opportunity. So I stayed in South Africa and um, not by properly choosing a degree of my choice, I went through to um, doing a Bachelor of Arts uh, in and majoring in organizational psychology and economics. And, you know, people, are, again, it's a kind of a sore point where people go, oh, how did you choose what you wanted to study? I'm like, oh, it wasn't quite a choice. Yet the beautiful thing that I have realized that has now given me all the opportunity uh, that I'm acting on is the fact that South Africa taught me how to navigate barriers. So despite growing up in the Group Areas Act, despite not feeling like I had my full choice of subjects, despite entering the workforce in an affirmative action role, because by the time I graduated, I got my role because they were looking for a person of color to put on their quota system to say, yes, we have a person of color. So I was the first person of color employed you know, personnel officer role. And I was segregated even in there, you know, in the bathroom. I had my own um, a women's cubicle, like for people of color, which was, I think I joked with you and I thought that was pretty great because I'm a bit of a hygiene nut. And I thought, this is great. I get my own toilet, which is wonderful. <laughs> like, plus, something the positive half glass full kind Indeed. of person. Yep. And yet every barrier that I feel I was dealt, I found a way around it. And as many people did in South Africa, because we were accepting of the realism of the barrier and we would find a way out of it. Sometimes it would take us longer than we anticipated, but that activism around finding an opportunity despite barriers is something that is innate to me. And my parents were very much... Uh, more bold and activism orientated, more so my father than my mum. My mum was very cautious about what being active politically and socially would mean as a consequence. So, but my father was very much an activist. You know, we grew up with sometimes having people come to our house and sleep overnight. And then my father would drive them in the early hours of the morning to safety, that sort of thing. We'd have to give up our rooms or clothes to a family who was trying to, you know, flee. So, you know, I have learned through that early, in those early days in South Africa, that you have to have your own internal agency, despite whatever barriers are in your way. And I think it's actually formed part of my core and my level of resilience has built over time. Yeah. Uh, so not much can phase me in terms of barriers. A no doesn't phase me or, <laughs> you know, of, you know, or people look at me and go, oh, you know, it's, um, you know, you're very lucky to own and operate a business. And I'm like, no, luck has nothing to do with it. It is about internal agency, resilience, grit, moving forward. Um, And I think that's just part of my DNA. So I'm quite grateful for my early beginnings in South Africa and it's led me here and I will make the change for diversity and inclusion in the way that I can. Yeah. When did you come to Australia? When was that? I came um, 16 years ago uh, and I was six months pregnant with our son and we chose to come. um, We made a decision to leave and in three weeks we left quite quickly because we wanted our son to be born in 
Australia so that he would get citizenship. We applied through a skilled migrant program and we had got our permanent residency about a year before that. But it was more of a safety net Australia if things got so bad in South Africa that we needed to go quickly. And there were certain things that happened in our area and in our suburb. And I was hijacked and abducted in 1998. Um, and that colored our lens of you know, how could we bring a child into this place and feel safe and comfortable? Being pregnant changed our view of the level of safety. Of I think course. before that, you kind of justify that it's okay. That You know, we, we just put an alarm system in or you have barbed wire fence so you have a guard at, at the apartment. And if you do those things, you're kind of okay for now. And we were okay until, you know, I got further along in the pregnancy and the realism of actually bringing a child into the world and potentially facing situations like a hijacking, we thought, no, we can't do that. And we, we actually booked a flight and then we worked it out afterwards. <laughs> we thought, okay, right, okay, we've got a date, we'll book a flight and we'll just go. And then we just worked backwards in three weeks, we sold everything and we moved quite fast, much to our family's astonishment. Uh, they were like, oh, we're actually going. I'm like, yep, we are. And I'll never look back. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that decision. Fantastic. And you came to Melbourne? Or? We flew into Perth to kind of break our, my journey. I have a, then had a sister-in-law in Perth. And then we came to Melbourne mainly because my husband, who worked for ExxonMobil, had a role that he wasn't quite promised, but there was an opportunity overall. So we came to Melbourne for that. So obviously wanting to do medicine, did organisational psychology, you would have worked with a number of people over the years and, and at school. Was there a mentor, an early mentor of yours that that helped shape who you are today? Was there anybody, a school teacher, a university professor, or somebody that sort of really helped really get who you are? I wouldn't say in South Africa because we were pretty isolated in terms of access to that kind of support, I would guess. And I suppose at that stage, young age, I wasn't really reaching out for that. Um, I was part of, and just to correct you, I, I wasn't even sure that I wasn't wanted to do medicine. It's just that I, I was sure that that opportunity wasn't on the table. <laughs> so like, I, knew I couldn't get there. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I wanted to shoot for what I could do, but that aspiration was curbed. So, I mean, I, I fell into psychology by default. But early stages, not really. Uh, I would say the first time I actually would say that I could define this person as a mentor was when I was doing my master's through Monash Business School. And um, it was a visiting lecturer from Singapore who was working in leadership development. And Monash at the time was running a personal development program for people completing their master's, recognizing that many people who finished an MBA were not utilizing their MBAs integrated into their life. Right. So they offered um, a selected few top students an opportunity to trial the program. And so I was offered that opportunity over six months to work uh, with Dr. Bob Aubrey. And we got along like a house on fire. Um, and I actually, a lot of his advice and he will say this as well i, I kind of shaped it through a different lens because 
I said, that's great to say, you know, chat out your aspirations, put out a goal, but here I am, a migrant, I'm resettling, I'm retraining, I'm juggling being a new mom with no support. Uh, my husband travels globally. I'm often a single parent. In the day-to-day scheme of things, your kind of lovely, seamless approach of just putting mm-hmm. a plan into place and off you go and executing it doesn't kind of work for me. And he loved that kind of different thinking. Um, and I actually then appear as a case study in his book because I approached it I did a plan, but I did a dual plan with my husband. So I said, my decisions as a female leader are not mine on my own. Socially and culturally, we need to make a life together, and I need to do this plan together. And so I I was one of the first candidates who looked at a dual career plan um, and also I looked at risks and mitigations across the way. So I said, this might happen and then what do I do? And that might happen and then what do I do? Rather than going, oh, this is the plan and I just kind of follow it and then adjust as I go. Um, So I wanted to know, kind of chart out beforehand what could go wrong and see it more clearly and have a conversation with my husband about those risks and mitigations and he loved that idea. So I kind of reverse mentored him in a way in terms of his thinking And he mentored me in terms of um, backing myself because at that stage, I carried a lot of uh, doubt in terms of level of competency and fitting in in Australia and having something to offer and those sorts of things. And um, he actually was fantastic in going, change your language, like back yourself, sound more affirmative and confident and don't offer like softer suggestions, say, we should do that. I recommend we do that, not, you know, what if kind of thing. So he brought out in me something that he saw that I didn't see, which is that level of confidence and bravado that I actually did have, but coming to Australia made me hesitant and doubtful of my own abilities. And that Difficult was fantastic. To believe that now, dude. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of vulnerability there, just a little bit. But that was back in, what, 2004 or something like that. And he gave me a shot when I thought I wasn't ready yet. And he said, you're fantastic. We're running this in a second iteration for the next cohort of MBA students. I want you to run a class. And I was like, oh, me? But I've just like recently graduated. Like, are you sure? (laughs) He was like, there it is again. Stop that. Run it. And I actually loved it because it gave me a voice and I could share also that same vulnerability with others who were also experiencing but couldn't quite vocalize it. So it was a fantastic opportunity. I taught as his associate for about two years through two babies. I was pregnant most of the time for the next two years and I got associated with a business school and we had fantastic sort of responses and feedback and I loved it. It was a platform outside of my current corporate role and it gave me an opportunity to really showcase that I was worthy of that opportunity. Yeah. So take me through the sort of your career. Obviously, university uh, here, you know, doing your MBA or doing the graduate program there. And what were you doing? Because you now get your own sort of consulting practice. So how did all that come about? And you know, what led to all of that? What led to our business was our own personal lived experience of resettling in Australia and and trying to find our way in a corporate space. And part of the exercises that I did with 
Bob Aubrey about these scenario plannings, uh, you know, understanding, well, if we had to remain in corporate careers, the both of us for the next five years, where would we, would we be financially? Where would we be in terms of our careers and next level opportunities? And when we did that, we actually realized that we started on that as one scenario or pathway. And we found that we weren't moving as fast as we could have moved, even if we were back in South Africa. We were moving at a slower trajectory than other people who were born here. We considered the fact that we maybe did not have enough, yes, internal agency, definitely didn't have the networks to move fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, we were playing it safe inside corporates as well. So we were just following the, you know, the natural year-on-year performance appraisal and we move up a little bit, move sideways a little bit. And we realized that all we would ever do was a repeat of what our parents did, which was get really good roles, stay safe, get well educated, and literally, you know, earn enough money to pay for a mortgage and put our kids through school. And that was the sum total of our transition out of South Africa. We're literally repeating what our parents did for us. Um, and when we ran that scenarios, those scenarios through, we actually even at that stage, early 2004, 2005, we said we wanted something else that we could do that actually had fulfilled a financial dream, fulfilled a social impact dream, fulfilled an entrepreneurial slash mm-hmm. career dream and a lifestyle dream. We said we did not come to Australia to you know, burn the midnight oil and stay long hair and put our kids in childcare and, and never be home or battle through that kind of managing uh, without support. And um, we couldn't see working even the next 10 years as fulfilling any sort of financial or wealth proposition. And we felt that that was holding us back because if we didn't fulfill that, we couldn't actually give back socially, community-wise at all, in time or money. So we said, well, when we think about it, we have to take a leap of faith to try an alternate path, an entrepreneurial path. And in 2011, when my daughter was born, my last little one, it's the first time I had headspace to think about what I could do. So we had the thinking that we needed to follow an entrepreneurial path. While I was at Optus and studying my master's, we trialed two startups that failed (laughs) while working. And it was great learning because we understood that just having a great idea and not having the ability to commercialize it or not actually committing to an entrepreneurial path. You know, we were trying to dabble like a side hustle, doing a little bit of entrepreneurial consulting work. We weren't committing to it fully. We could never fully realize the commercial benefit of running an entrepreneurial path, nor could we just take a great idea and think that people would buy it. So it was great learning because it taught us all of those valuable lessons and we needed focus and attention. And when Optus was going through a restructure, I put up my hand and then regretted it moments after for mm-hmm. redundancy. I went, I'll do it. And my husband is a little bit more risk open than I am, a bit cautious. So here I had a 15-month-year-old who was already committed to childcare. So I was planning to return back to work only then to return for a week and go, I'm up, I'll go. So I took a package. And while she was still in childcare, I used that package to fund her childcare basically while I moved these ideas around and started a little bit of consulting in that first year. And again, a very, very wobbly year. But my uh, husband, who's great at strategy and pricing and modeling, was the first person to force me to not build a business based on my time, 
because I would only ever be a freelance consultant. Right. He pushed me to develop a product or a suite of services and some at fixed cost so that I could quickly move to proposal and execute really well. And it was easy to move off the shelf in a way um, like a product. And that changed my lens and also made sure that I wasn't building a business based on my skills and capability, but I was building a business that I could bring other people with me. So that was great movement, but stuff I was just learning pretty much as I was building the plane in that first year, first two years. So we're in year six, almost year seven now, which is great. And my husband has left his role at Ernst & Young as the director and come on board almost three years ago. So we are standing up now really nice and solidly in our business and we are recruiting people underneath. We are making sure that we live true to our social impact. We give 10% of our revenue to Plan International. We support four children other than our three children. (laughs) And giving 10% as a small business is really hard when you are just getting up the curve of profitability. I do the same. Yeah, do I you? I give 10% of my coaching business to Where for Success, Jody uh, Tucker and I, uh, and it's really helping people get the self-esteem for their, you know, to find a job. So I give 10% of my coaching business. Beautiful. If there weren't mics in our way, I'd give you a hug. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. It takes a little bit of bravado because, you know, when you're building your own business, yeah. um, you know, that cash can be injected many other places, you know. But we make it part of our business model and we, we set that tone for our values as well. So just a brief sort of snapshot of the products that you guys do, what is it that you consult that you do? Yeah. Yeah. So we do three things. We all under the banner of cultural inclusion and cultural capability. So the first thing that we do is um, cultural diversity for customers. So we really challenge brands and big brands to be aware of their future and emerging customer demographic from a diversity profile perspective. We are quickly finding out through a number of audits that we do with big brands that they don't actually know their customers from a behavioral profiling perspective, especially my migrant customers or first people. They are treating customers with, with a very Western lens of what they would need or want. And that actually goes into everything, the design of products, services, and the way they engage with that customer experience is through just a one sort of cookie cutter approach. And by revealing some of the insights, we are trying to show them that there's a cost of missing out from not including the customer in a real authentic way. And there's a really great study that was done by Deloitte last year, which showed that the Australian economy misses out $75 billion when they actually exclude customers who are ethnically and other gender and LGBTI you know, in their makeup and when they are not engaged properly in the servers or their products and services not designed in a way, they are actually losing um, those customers because they will keep changing brands till they find something that's as close to them. Um, So that's interesting. And it's a really great one because it's data centric. So we reveal the data from a benchmarking external perspective of the opportunity to move some of those customer demographics. And we also look at their internal customer data. So how many of those migrant customers do they actually engage properly? Do they know them? Do they understand them? It's fascinating. We love that. So that's customer diversity. The second pillar is employee diversity. And we really look 
inside the workforce to understand where culturally diverse people sit across the business. We typically find them in the middle of the business in terms of seniority. Mm -hmm. As we know, most boards, executive director teams are mainly Anglo-Celtic in Australia. And there's a little bit of gender diversity there, but not intersectional. So not women of color in there or men of color. If they are, they are often in a multinational where they are expatriates coming in and coming out. So it's very interesting. By and large, we just don't find the diversity at the top. And then we say, well, that's actually hurting your customer, your shareholders, et cetera, when you don't have that diversity of thinking in itself. So we challenge for that. And then we do a lot in cultural capability. We find that um, in the shared service market and the contact center market, where Australian leaders and New Zealand leaders predominantly just don't have the cultural capability to lead big pieces of work where they have offshore teams who are cross-culturally different mm-hmm. or virtual. Right. It's just a new skill set for them. And we find that because their cultural capability is low, they actually miss the return on investment from offshoring. And some of the deals that we're working with are up to like $100 million worth of work that's been covered in just an offshoring arrangement. So this is IT shared services, finance shared services that are done predominantly by Indian or Filipino staff. And because it's not run well, there's a lot of inefficiency there. So cultural capability is low and we build that up. So those are the three spaces that we play in. And what's coming next for us is to actually come up with um, an accreditation of cultural diversity and um, cultural competence. So we're actually going to say who's doing it well because we often get asked the question, okay, that's the problem. You've been working with a couple of brands. Who's doing it well? So we thought this is good. We're going to start accrediting those companies that are on the journey further than others and give them a bit of a prize, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you've recently won some awards, which is absolutely terrific, but you've had your own little diversity a cultural issue that you've had to deal with with that. Do you want to share what that was? Oh, which one now? I've got a few up my belt. Which one are you talking about? Well, Give there me was a- one you mentioned about that you wanted your parents to attend and uh, they wouldn't attend or you couldn't tell them. Oh, yes. So we actually, it's interesting because within our own family, we actually have in- inherent biases towards our perceived pathways of success. So what our parents or extended family would wish for us is something stable in terms of corporate job and provide for your family is the level of success or measure of success, right? So for us as two Indian people who are well-educated and have come out to Australia would have these expectations of following that path of success, which, you know, our siblings have done and extended family members have done. And yet we've taken, as I've mentioned in this interview, a completely different path, an entrepreneurial path, which is deemed as less successful by those standards. (laughs) So even though we are winning awards as a business, and I myself um, with the 100 Women of Influence, being one of the very few women of color recognized in those hundred. I think there were just three women of Indian origin in that hundred, which is saying something. We just couldn't celebrate it in the way that everybody else was celebrating it because it's not quite a win in our parents' eyes or in our siblings' eyes or extended family because it's good enough, but it's not – they don't feel like 
there is a measure of success that is, um, you know, financial wealth or massive house or driving a fancy car or, you know, we measure success differently. So for us, if we can build a business that's profitable to be able to do social good and then to give back socially, and we can still do all of that and put our kids through private school and give them the best of everything in terms of advantage, that for us is success where it's not the same measures um, when it comes from, you know, our Indian social cultural construct. So that's difficult because, you know, it's hard to keep yourself confident and your head above water when you know that your own family may not be celebrating in the way that you want them to celebrate. So we have wonderful support from our partners, our co-founders, our clients who cheer loudly when we we win something like that. And and I feel it from an external perspective. But internally in our family dynamics, and it's a hard truth to admit to say that openly. And I'm probably going to maybe not share this podcast with some family members because that might put them offside. But, you know, it is what it is. And it's hard to swallow sometimes. And it's it's probably even, you know, as much as it's hard for me as the driver of the business, it's also hard for my husband who has to measure up to that Indian male construct, mm. you know, as well because he's joined the business after I've started it. So that's also hard for him in his identity um, to grapple with that, um, you know, he does get the, oh, you work for your wife kind of jokes or, you know, how successful could he be? What does he actually do in the business, which is hard. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> if you were able to go back and have a chat to your 21-year-old self yep. about you and give her some advice about her career, yep. what would it be and why? Now, that's an interesting age that you pick, 21, because it was around, just before that I had experienced my hijacking and abduction in South Africa. So I was taken by three youths in a car and I escaped that. So I always call myself a survivor of a hijacking. And I would not give myself any different advice at 21, looking back now, because I actually pulled myself up from that experience and said to myself, live, just take every opportunity, go at it with gusto, don't let anything stop you, explore, 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 discover. And that's what I said to myself at that age when everyone was saying, oh my gosh, you've been through a violent attack, stop, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, safety is the number one concern. I still volunteered. I was a director of youth services for Rotary. I started a people opposing women's abuse center right outside the police station. I was a first responder. I put myself right in there, front and center, and I didn't look back. And I said to myself at that age, you've got a second shot. Don't waste it. And that's exactly what I live by every single day. So I wouldn't change that anything. I wouldn't say anything different to myself. Probably the only thing, if I had to really, really think about it, I'd say, and I don't do this now very well, so I have to check myself, is I move like a freight train. Sometimes I have to stop and appreciate where I am and what I've achieved and celebrate a little bit. I'm often the person looking forward 10 steps again and again. And because I'm also the sales arm of our business as well, I take that upon my shoulders 
as my responsibility to make the dollars for everyone, everyone who is part of our company, but also our children, our family, etc. And international, well. I've got yeah. that responsibility. Uh, yeah, so I don't do that well. I don't stop. I don't appreciate where I am. I also don't do enough, which I'm trying to change as well, to give myself headspace and calm and just time you know, out of everything that I'm really shit ass at, but I'm getting better at that. But I would say that, you know, from the time I was hijacked to now, like 20 something years later, I'm the same. I'm like, go, 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 live, 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 do it, do it, do it. Don't stop. And that's not also good <laughs> as well. Uh, All right. So probably another question I, I sort of ask everybody is, uh, is there a quote that you live by then? I reflected on that question, and there's not a quote, but there's a philosophy that I live by. Sure. Um, so it actually came from one of my psych classes, I remember, but in a very simple way, it's feel, think, do. And if I often influence others to do something positive, when I give a keynote address in a, in a large audience, I'll often say I'll push them a little bit with some really interesting commentary to extend their thinking. And I say, well, if that makes you feel uncomfortable – or if you feel with me a little bit and think some more, consult, and then do something progressive. For me, you know, bad things happen when good people do nothing. It's not enough just to listen and be inspired and hear and feel with. That's really a cop-out to do nothing after that, to think about it and then say, oh, well, somebody needs to fix that or somebody needs to do something. That somebody is likely you. So I often say feel, think, and do. Do something positive. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Don't wait for something. Everybody can do something within their sphere of influence. Absolutely right. You have to find that. Make one small change in your sphere of influence and that little drop adds to the bucket and the world is a better place. But for me, I, I actually get quite um, annoyed when I see people feel things and hear things and comment but do nothing. And I go, where's your agency? How is the world going to get better for your children or for yourself if you actually do nothing? So, yeah, feel, think, do is what I say often in keynotes and to others. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's probably what half of the, goes to the heart of the series that we're trying to do here. Yeah. I'm trying to do my little bit by – getting leaders like you talking in conversation. So the last real sort of question really is uh, about a book or a series of books. Is there anything that you've read recently or over time that's resonated that helps sort of shape your business, uh, shape who you are? Yep. Well, I'm an avid reader, but if I had to pick one, I actually um, chose this one. It's called Managing Your Aspirations, Developing Personal Enterprise in the Global Workplace. And it is by Dr. Bob Aubrey, my mentor. And what I like about it is that it has several case studies of young people, of older people, of people from different walks of life. So it's a beautiful diversity there and people from many different global locations that have offered this story of managing their career aspirations. And I mean really managing, sort of sometimes sacrificing things, sometimes going different pathways and being challenged by the whole driving of those aspirations. And I like that because it shows everybody's vulnerability in managing it and everybody working in a little bit of gray most of the time until you kind of figure things out. So I like it because it's stories. It's stories from different people. And I've read it. And sometimes I 
revisit it to just check myself. And sometimes I like it because my case study is in there and I was pregnant in 2007 with my daughter who's now 12. And I sometimes read it because like, oh, oh my gosh, look what I put down in in terms of my aspirations. And I go, tick, tick, some of them are there, which is great, which means I've moved myself from point A to point B. So I use it sometimes as a reality check. So if you're interested, there's a collection of case studies and you can see me there very chubby because I was eight months pregnant in that photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but... Terrific. Yeah. Well, that was terrific and really a delightful interview. Thank you so much Thank for uh, coming in and sharing that for the Diversity Matters podcast series. It has been absolutely terrific. Thank you very much. I hope Thank you enjoyed you, it. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.